Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Today, I am so excited to welcome my Dear friend and old friend and old colleague, Felita Harris, to leave your mark. Felita, welcome. It's so good to see you always. Thank you, Aliza, for inviting me to your amazing podcast. It's such a pleasure to see you. Oh, I love seeing you too. So for everyone listening, Felita is amazing. She's a forward-thinking executive with extensive experience in driving sustainable revenue growth formulating business strategies, and cultivating collaborative partnerships. Felita, you have served senior positions, including Chief Strategy and Revenue Officer at Harlem's Fashion Row, Icon360. You've been Executive Vice President of Alexander Wang. You were Senior Vice President of Donna Karen Collection when we were both there under LVMH. You have a track record for increasing revenue and identifying innovative business opportunities. And you also are passionate about professional development and growth. You yourself got a degree at Cornell for diversity and inclusion in 2020. And of course, you're a founding member of Raise Fashion, a nonprofit network of fashion industry leaders that provide pro bono consultation to Black-owned businesses and individuals. You advise so many brands across the board. You sort of go across from fashion into sustainability, into all different types of teams. I'm excited to have you on because we know each other from like our childhood days of (laughs) growing up at Donna Karen. And when Felita and I recently had a conversation just about where the industry is now and the conversation around DEI, obviously since the murder of George Floyd and what has been happening since then. And you have a really different experience growing up in fashion. And I think that what you're doing right now to give visibility and support to Black-owned brands is incredible. But your experience was different. Do you want to share a little bit about your early days in your career? First of all, I feel very fortunate to have the space and the capacity to be able to support designers executives and community leaders for this moment in history. My experience in corporate America was very different. Um, Leaders like yourself, Carol Kerner, Mark Weber, Stephanie, Nancy, and I could go on and on, provided a space for me to 
be myself. It's what we call diversity, inclusion, belonging, all the buzzwords that we hear, you know, creating a seat at the table. I was very fortunate to have that over a decade ago and for a decade, um, a lot of mentorship, a lot of networking opportunity, a lot of advancement while at LVMH after they acquired Donna Karen Collection. And that experience was very important for me because I was entering a global brand that was very successful with individuals that were more experienced, that didn't look like me, but gave me a lot of encouragement and space and resources to succeed. And so I enter this conversation with a lot of confidence to say, if we provide these same tools and opportunities for other Black and Brown individuals, then they could feel and experience what I felt throughout my career. That's really what I want to offer. So I've had many guests on the show, Kimberly Lee Minor, who you know well, you know, this whole conversation about being the first and the only. Mm-hmm. And back then in Donna Karen, you were one of just a few Black women in the organization. Obviously, the conversation was different back then. Was that something that you were sort of like looking around the room and thinking, wow, I'm the only? Or was it something not on your radar? I'm just curious. I noticed it, but whenever it was apparent, I had the strong leadership team that would step in and provide more resources, more opportunity. And I don't know. I mean, I guess I would have to pose the question back and say, what was it about me that gave this leadership team the confidence to say, no, I know she's the only Black person here, but we should be providing opportunity and space for her. Yeah. Because whenever I was losing confidence, right, because not every person that walks into a room, if you don't see yourself, you don't automatically come in with all the confidence, right? I was experienced, but without having support and sponsors walking in the door, yeah, you can lose your way. But I had a lot of support. And whenever I was losing confidence, people like you, like I said, Carol Kerner, Stephanie Reiner, Mark Weber, Caroline Bright, every people stepped in and said, you can do it. And so that led me to the next opportunity. I had opportunities to travel the world. And so it would have been great to see other people who look like me. It didn't stop me from moving forward because I had the tools and the support. You know, it's interesting because you turned that question around so beautifully. And from my perspective, it's super clear to me. Talent is talent. And I think that you were recognized as someone who was very smart, very savvy, very talented. And in your role, specifically in sales, right, of a luxury brand, being able to build authentic relationships was really your greatest skill set. And you did that so beautifully with every vendor. And then they kept on just pushing you forward, pushing you forward, pushing you forward. And it was all deserved promotion. So I don't think it was even about you as a Black woman. It was you as a talent. And I think we both have discussed 
over the years how Donna herself has always been someone who has been a proponent of diversity and inclusion in all of her ad campaigns, in all of her fashion shows. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because she doesn't really get the credit because she was such a pioneer in that space of just having, you know, women all different ages. Like it didn't matter. Like she really was about everyone. And I think in a way, maybe in a subconscious way, we grew up like that. Yeah, you make a really good point. When you have a creative director and a founder of a fashion brand that insists on the color black being prominent, right? And the color black being beautiful, being representative in ad campaigns. You know, my wardrobe is like 90% black. Same, (laughs) obviously, same. Like we were very proud to wear black. It was a symbol of power and confidence and beauty and strength. And so I think as a Black executive and a Black woman, that also gave me a lot of confidence to, you know, we talk about showing up as ourselves. I think that also had a very positive effect on me. Here's this female founder and powerhouse woman walking the halls. And by the way, with a lot of black women in prominent positions around her and she was upholding this standard. There was also diversity around Donna Karen. It wasn't only black, it was also Latinx. It was also gender diversity. It was sexual diversity, you know? And so we were all, I feel celebrated in a way. It was a beautiful experience. It was. It was very special. And I think we're all better for experiencing it. But one thing that I think is really important to talk about, and not everyone has this luxury, is your own sort of family pedigree, right? Mm -hmm. You come from a household of strong, amazing women. You're born in Chattanooga. You spent some time in Italy. How do you feel like your mother has impacted who you are today? Mm, Yeah, thank you for that. My mother, she passed away in August. And I think my mother, she was very focused. And she was focused on ensuring that we were exposed. And that the conversation in our house was about progress. And it was about independence. And it was about work ethic. You know, when I think back, I wish we had more conversation around race. I think my mother was probably trying to, like many Black families, trying to get some distance from the pain of the past and say, you know, move forward and create a new future and destiny and purpose for yourself. But make no mistake, my mother definitely made sure we knew we were Black, we were proud, but we were destined for a greater future. I love that. I just got chills. Let's talk a little bit about work ethic because I know your work ethic. (laughs) I know it so well. And, you know, I posted a video this week on Instagram just talking about how, you know, I check my email when I'm on vacation at night on the weekends because speed can sometimes be the difference of seizing an opportunity or not. Mm. We worked our asses off at Donna Karen. Yeah. 
What do you think has changed? And especially because you're mentoring all of these young designers now, do you think that the drive is still there to succeed in the way that we were raised with that work ethic? I do think the drive is there. I think it really depends on the creator. I don't think every person is living their passion and purpose. And I think it's harder to identify that today. You know, I think we assume that that's easier to find and tap into. I think it's more difficult because there are more choices, right? You know, I think about my daughter, Kennedy, who is much more exposed at an earlier age. You know, they could take a million classes to determine their interest. Um, my focus was much more narrow. So, you know, I could identify what my passions were early on. I think it's just difficult for people to really hone in on what their interests are. And, you know, someone gave me advice. I think it was Regina Jackson, um, a dear friend of mine said, nothing pushes it like passion. And when you are passionate about something, you will get up early and you will work 18, 20 hour days. And that work ethic will drive you to the finish line. And I think that's just the difference. I totally agree. So when you think about what you're trying to do with RAISE, which stands for Respect, Advocate, Inspire, Support, Empower. What is this mentorship program for Black creatives? And how does somebody get involved? How does someone benefit from it? What are the credentials needed? Yeah, it's a program that we are all so very proud of. The organization started over two years ago, Aliza, with a simple post. It was a call to action after George Floyd was murdered with a request to support Black designers with pro bono strategy in any form, mostly operational support, to answer critical questions around how to build a business, how to connect these designers to the fashion ecosystem, how to help them launch a business in wholesale. And as a result, we've launched over 40 designers of color to some of the most luxurious retailers in the fashion industry. And we're really proud of that. I did not realize it was that many. That's great. It's great. And we have over 300 advisors that have raised their hand to provide pro bono strategy to designers. And the process is quite simple. Designers are able to sign up on our website and identify the need. They are matched to an advisor based on skill set, our advisors are experts. They are domain experts who work currently in the fashion industry who will donate time, again, pro bono, to support a designer in advancing and scaling their business. It's so great. I mean, the amount of talent that is coming out of Black designers right now is pretty incredible. It's so inspiring to see because you know, fashion was one way for so long. Yeah. And it is a hard nut to crack. You know, you speak of the ecosystem, but like the ecosystem is a really complicated place. If you just have talent, it's not enough. It's not enough. And I think we look at BIPOC designers as, you know, it's a novelty. Like, oh my God, it's so great. Look at all this talent. But 
I think if we actually look at the fashion industry and address the business opportunities, seventy billion dollars on the table in the next few years. So think about twenty thirty. There's seventy billion dollars of opportunity. It is our opportunity to support BIPOC brands to build this operational ecosystem and really, really support the scale of these designers. And so working with organizations like Raise Fashion, working with 15% Pledge, Black and Fashion Council, CFDA, Harlem's Fashion Row, organizations like this really support designers in various stages of their brand development. This is the business that really, really matters when you're looking at innovation. I love it. And I think it's such a blueprint, like every vertical needs this, not just fashion, right? That's right. And it is interesting to see even what Kimberly Lee Miner is doing in her realm. There are so many people in fashion in particular that have stepped up and said, you know what, I'm going to take this on. But I don't see it as much in other industries, unless I'm not looking. Do you feel that it exists in other mediums as much as it needs to? You know, I do see it. Good. We look at programming. We look at grants and different financial access, support, and mentorship. I think that the problem when you look at marginalized groups exists across many industries. And so although it isn't as visible when you are deeply rooted in an industry like fashion or entertainment or music. I do think, albeit at a small scale, there are programs starting to develop and have been over the last couple of years to support Black and Brown businesses. I do. I love hearing that. You've once said that it takes courage to pursue what's possible and seemingly impossible. What do you think is the most courageous thing you've done? Mm, Aliza. (laughs) (laughs) The most courageous thing that I have done, I think, is to be a parent. Um, It takes courage to make decisions for someone else and to do that with love, care, concern, You know this, you're an amazing mom. You make these decisions prayerfully and you hope for the best. So I think being a parent is probably the most courageous decision that I make on a daily basis, for sure. I'm so glad that was your answer. I wouldn't have thought of it actually, but it is so freaking true. (laughs) And there's no directions that come with it. So it's like, you're just figure it out as you go. And it's true. I mean, it it is kind of wild that we're responsible for other people. Another human being. Like what? I mean, and we like to celebrate the wins, but there are days when you're not winning. Oh, honey, this morning, Jonathan and I got into a huge argument because (laughs) Sabrina told me there was no school today because they were studying for finals. So I didn't wake anybody up. And then he had a final. Whoopsie. But it takes courage to just wake them up and get them out of that house. (laughs) Of course, I was like, well, you should set your alarm clock. Why is it my job? I know. I know. It's beautiful. And I think the other courageous decision in parenting is being able to apologize. Mm, I didn't want to do that today. 
<laughs> I didn't. I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up in a house where my parents were apologizing to me <laughs> often. But that takes a lot of courage too. But um, I love Kennedy to pieces. So happy to be her mom. She's an amazing girl. Thank you. Thank you. You are someone who exudes a lot of confidence in the way that you show up. And I know some days you don't feel like being bold, but you Mm -hmm. always do show up at 100%. What's your mindset like? Like, how do you think about facing, you know, your day every day, or especially when you're having a challenging time in your business or, or embarking on something new? How do you train yourself to always be so bold? Alisa, I have to tell you, I started a spiritual practice at 14, and that is my faith in God, 100%. And it took years to refine that practice, but I do take time to center myself in the Lord and try to just put my faith there. There's so many things we cannot control. Mm-hmm. I don't think we control anything. But I think when you put your faith in something outside of yourself and you commit to doing your best, despite the outcome that you cannot control, then it takes the weight off it, takes the stress off. And taking the weight off allows you to show up a little lighter with more joy and happiness. And I think that probably gives the appearance of confidence, but that's really where I'm deeply rooted is my faith in the Lord. I love that. And obviously, since we both stopped working together, you know, in a full-time corporate role, you have worked at many different places. You've consulted with different entities. When you're showing up for the first time, Mm -hmm. or if you're thinking about someone who is starting a new role, And has that feeling of just like, oh, God, like, how am I showing up in that new role? How did you center yourself to sort of embark onto a new team or a new set of circumstances and be able to immerse yourself in a way where you can be effective from the jump? Because sometimes it takes a while, but I feel like you kind of just like very easily slip in. You make your presence known. You share your expertise. You do your thing. What advice would you give someone? I've learned to refine this practice over time. I used to think that it was about showing up, doing the job, and, you know, everyone will be happy with the results. I've learned that it's really about the people and about creating the connection at a human level. And so I do think that's the start of any role, whether it's an organization you're joining for the first time, a community, nonprofit, whatever it is, it's really about connecting with the people, getting to know who you're working with. The work will come. You're hired because you're skilled. The first step is just getting to know the people you're going to work with at a human level because we're all connected. It kind of goes back to your first question about sort of like being the only one in a room. Well, if we set that aside, what connects us? Uh, Food, movies, neighborhood, language, family. There's so many things we can talk about that will create quick connections. And from there, we can do a lot of business together. Mm -hmm. Because now we, we like each other. 
we want to build more connection and success together. So I think that's what I've learned and what I'm still learning as I grow in my career. You have a certain work style Mm -hmm. and you managed your team previously a certain way. When you go into a new organization now, when you're consulting or whatever, how do you flex your work style to sort of marry to whatever ecosystem you're going into? I think it's a little different when you're consulting. There's a lot of listening when you're consulting versus flexing your leadership style. I think today the work environment requires a lot of listening and allowing that process to guide how you interact differently with each team member. Like that is the difference. Before it was about like addressing sort of the challenges of what's happening in the business and allowing that to create the strategy and then delivering the strategy and everyone sort of taking their part and executing. It's not like that now. It's really about doing more listening up front. I think that's a good point. Mm-hmm. So one of your mantras is not to take no for an answer. Mm, I don't like no. You don't like no. <laughs> how do you practice that? And how many times do you go back to the well to try to get the yes? Or do you go another route? What's your strategy? Such a great question. And I often ask myself, why is no not good enough? And Elisa, it's just not good enough. (laughs) Sometimes I go, Felita, but they said no. And I answer myself back and go, yeah, it's not good enough. It's yes. So I think it's at a DNA level for me. Like I love partnerships. They call it commercial development or sales. I call it partnerships. When I hear the word sales, I think of a person on a used car lot with missing (laughs) teeth. So I call it commercial development or something or partnerships. It's a little more, it's like it has a chic tone to it. So I think about partnerships and I think about a win-win scenario. And if it's a win-win, then it is a yes. What's the no for? Remove no. And let's talk about how we both get yes out of this situation. That's it. I think that that is a great thing that you're pointing out, the mutual benefit. And I'll give you one of your examples. When you were working at Harlem's Fashion Row, you put together an amazing partnership with LBH. Thank you. Which is not an easy ship to turn. Let's just be real. So doing something like that, which, by the way, is a first. They had not done that before. How did you leverage your network to get that done? Well, thank you. And I just have to say thank you to the team, Anish, Corey, Gina. You know the team very well. Um, I think that is a perfect example of two willing organizations that needed the introduction. They needed to know each other. And when I joined Harlem's Fashion Row to consult, it was a matter of, let's look at the opportunity. Let's think about the market. Let's make some introductions. I met with Anish through, well, I was actually reintroduced to Anish because I had obviously met him while I was at LVMH. 
reconnected with a niche and said, hey, these are some projects that I'm working on. Ray's fashion was one. Harlem's fashion role was the second. And he said, there's some connectivity here. Yeah, let's make this happen. And that's just a perfect example of, yes, of course, there had to be conversations around how the deal was structured, but it's a perfect example of, yes, we both want the same things. And so it wasn't complex in that diversity wasn't at the center. They want diversity. Harlem's Fashion Row is an organization with an express interest in supporting designers of color. So let's make it happen. One thing that I want to point out, though, is the way that you've built relationships throughout your career mm-hmm. and stayed in touch. Like you have not worked at LVMH in a very long time, right? So when you mentioned mm-hmm. Gina, when you mentioned people there, like those are relationships that you cultivated, that you kept in touch with, that you then tapped back into. So many people leave a company, close the door, and only think about who's ahead. They don't think about who's behind. So when you think about your network, your relationship building, and the authentic efforts you've made to keep those relationships going, do you not think back and think, wow, I have built an incredible network to be able to now support these Black creatives because you have cultivated all of that in your previous roles? You bring up a really good point. I think When you think about a chain, there are all these links. And sometimes we think, I'll cut this off and cut that off. You start breaking links and chains. My very good friend, Lisa Cap, who I've known since Donna Karen, Robert Lee Morris days, you know how long that's been, right? Introduced me to an amazing executive at Crown Realtor, Jenny who introduced me to Jeff, who was over Sephora Retail, who's very good friends with Anish, who reintroduced me to Anish. And then I was like, of course, Anish. I love it. So do you see how that... Yes, and it's a great analogy. And he goes, I have to introduce you to Anish. I said, no, 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 I know Anish. He goes, great, I will reintroduce you to Anish. And so when he sent the email... He says, you know, Felita, I'm reconnecting you. And Anish goes, of course I know Felita. Hey, Felita. It's amazing. And so I guess if I left LVMH and Anish (laughs) had a bad taste in his mouth, it would have gone anywhere. (laughs) But he was very, he was very kind when I was there. And you just keep relationships. You don't have to follow up with someone every week or every six months, but I think each engagement, each time you connect with someone, make it real, make it authentic, make it memorable and respect people's roles and their time. Well said. There's one thing that I want to bring up because I love that you said this and it's a really good thing to remember. You said in an interview, it is okay to make a different choice. And I think sometimes people are really scared to make a different choice. Everyone has their own set of standards or what they think they should be doing. What would you say is a choice that you made that you were scared about, but that ended up being the best choice? 
okay, well, Aliza, I'm going to pivot to my personal life. (laughs) (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think divorcing, Mm -hmm. definitely, that's just not an easy decision or choice to make. It's just not like being a single mom is hands down a hard job. No one should choose that or make that decision lightly. It's hard. But I think that if you are in a situation and your happiness and well-being is compromised, you have to make changes. That doesn't have to be as drastic as a divorce, but it does mean you need to address situations that create a better environment for yourself and certainly your family. And I just believe that there's stability on the other side. There's well-being on the other side. And that's courage. That's a courageous decision you have to make. And sometimes we get paralyzed in the now. We don't believe that there's a tomorrow. And I now have lived to see a lot of tomorrows. <laughs> and you just got to get up and make another decision and it will be okay and you will survive. You'll get past it. It's okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was beautiful, actually. And I love that sentiment of making a decision to see another tomorrow because it's true. And certainly you can look back on it now and really be like, wow, I did that and it was the right thing to do and I'm better for it. Oh, Salida, I love having you on. All right, last question. Okay. How do you ultimately want to leave your mark? Ultimately, I'd love to leave my mark with social impact. And I have to say, Aliza, if you had asked me this question a year ago, I don't know that I would have been clear about that. But I really am building a pipeline so that there are financial resources left for businesses that are marginalized and underrepresented. It's critical for our world that we continue to resource in time and economic opportunities because it matters. It matters for people like my daughter. It matters for her friends. It matters for communities that whether we live in them or not, this is our responsibility to pay it forward. So that is how I want to leave my mark. I love that. I love that. And you're well on your way. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Felita. I always love talking to you. Thank you, Elisa. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Aliza Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalicht.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.